Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons all, to episode 6 of our 30 Years War series, Investigating Warfare in the 17th Century. If you were wondering, no, your eyes have not been deceiving you. We haven't done very many of these episodes, and that is in many ways deliberate. I didn't want to bombard you guys with too much content, and having received feedback from you guys that you are getting bombarded with too much content, I decided to roll back a little bit with the 30 Years War series, so... There'll only be one episode a month until I hear overwhelming voices in favour of a different option. But for the moment, we'll be doing one a month. And by the time we reach November, we'll be changing things up in any case with the Versailles series. So 
Don't worry too much about the 30 years war, it's not going anywhere, but I'm just diluting it a little bit for the moment and hitting you with one of these episodes on 17th century warfare every single month. So, in the last episode, if you can cast your minds back to that, we saw how the Trace Italien, or Italian system of fortifications, had an impact on the way wars were fought in the 17th century, with the example of France providing our useful lens. In this episode, we're going to go back a bit into the mists of history and spend our time tracing the development of one power in particular that doesn't even play a particularly significant role in the Thirty Years' War, the Ottoman Empire. How technologically advanced were the Ottomans, and once they took to the field, how different were their tactics to their European rivals? Furthermore, were the Ottomans pioneers in the field of gunpowder technology, and was their society set up to respond to the military revolution in the same way as the West? All of these are questions we will seek to address in this episode. It will demonstrate to us that, contrary to the idea of Ottoman decline and European technological superiority, the Turk was more than ahead of his time, and in fact perfected several tactics and technologies which the West continued to grapple with for several years. As we looked in detail at the military revolution in the last episode, we can expect that theory to make an appearance here too. Without any further ado then, let's get into this. I will now take you to the Ottoman Empire, but before I do that, I have to remind you guys that this episode is brought to you by 1956. If you'd like to listen to something that's completely different to the Thirty Years' War, then do check out 1956. 1956 is accessible to all patrons who pay $5 and above, and it will take you into two particular stories. The first being the Soviet bloc once Stalin died, and how Khrushchev sought to cope with this by getting rid of Stalin, but not getting rid of the Soviet system which Stalin had made. It led to some interesting and tragic consequences, such as the Polish and Hungarian revolutions, From September, we'll be looking at the second part of 1956, which is the Suez Crisis, something which you guys may or may not be familiar with, but which involved, trust me when I say this, a whole load of convoluted, complex, controversial diplomacy. I'm sure there's more C's I can use in there to describe the diplomacy of the year, but for now I'll just say 1956 has been very well received by those of you that have listened to it. And if you wanted a break from the Korean War, or if you wanted to check out some of our other stuff, then do check out the Patreon page. Go to patreon.com forward slash windowplosyfails. You know the drill by now. It's the best way to support this podcast monetarily, and any support that you can give is really, really appreciated. Several people have signed up at the 2 or $1 level because they don't really have the time to access 1956, but they want to access the other perks that come along with that tier. So do check those out. There's so many different things to talk about with Patreon, I won't bore you guys with the details, but suffice to say, it's doing pretty well, and I'm really appreciating your support. You're making history thrive, guys, and I couldn't be more grateful. Alrighty, so, with all that being said, enjoy the episode. It is to the Ottomans that ingenuity and innovation with gunpowder, with results for the rest of Europe, must be attributed. The Turk, contrary to what his Christian neighbour would have you believe, was absolutely ahead of his time, where military technology was concerned. The Ottomans also dealt with enemies in some very different theatres. Safavid Persia was to the east, the Mamluk Turks in Egypt, steppe enemies further afield, border skirmishes in the Caucasus, And of course the Christian empires of Europe were encountered with blistering frequency as Turkish power and influence spread forth from the Balkans. 
As the Turk fought its enemies, it also dealt with warrior cultures that viewed gunpowder weapons very differently. Safavid Persia thought firearms cowardly and only reluctantly made use of cannons. Similarly, the Mamluk Turkish Empire in Egypt, Palestine and Syria was rapidly overcome in a succession of stunning triumphs in the second decade of the 1500s, thanks in large part to the Mamluk aversion to gunpowder weaponry, in a culture which placed more value on prowess on horseback and less on organised infantry tactics. In a similar vein did the Spanish defeat the Aztecs, as the latter upheld a warrior culture that emphasised the bravery and skill of the individual rather than the collective tactics of any army, a factor which made the Aztecs and other such warrior cultures in the words of the historian Jeremy Black, vulnerable to forces that place an emphasis on more concentrated manoeuvres and on anonymous combat, particularly those forces employing firepower. The Ottomans responded to the varied tactics and fighting style of their neighbours by combining several different units together into one army. Thus it was possible to see them employ Crimean Tartars against European powers in the Balkans with as much enthusiasm as they employed gunpowder infantry volleys against Safavid Persia, and the implementation of different tactics and soldiers necessitated the development of a highly efficient and organised bureaucracy which could properly move the soldiers from one corner of the empire to another, and, of course, equip them with the appropriate weapons. It was vital that the logistics were sorted out in this regard, especially in the event of sieges which required consistent pressure and resources to keep the besiegers maintained in good health and spirits. We know that the Ottomans employed cannons against the Byzantines during the successive sieges of Constantinople between 1394 and 1402, 1422, and the more successful one in 1453. They were also at Salonika in 1422 and 1430. They were at Antilia in 1424, Novo Bordo in 1427 and 1441, Smedrevo in 1439, and Belgrade in 1440. The Ottomans also engaged in several sieges over the 16th century, famously in Rhodes, Crete and Malta, and even while not all of these were successful, it was clear to the West that the Turk possessed an unparalleled talent for bringing the most effective elements of its armed forces to bear. They were forced, the Turks were forced that is, as conquerors, to take what was not theirs, so it isn't surprising that the Ottomans developed an intricate system for making the most of the siege. They were also pioneers in the act of actually using cannons during a siege, since it was only from the 1420s that cannons were used with much consistency in siegecraft by Europeans. Again, the Turk had been familiarised with gunpowder weapons since the middle of the 14th century, and from the 1380s onwards, they made regular use of the most primitive forms of such weapons while rampaging through the Balkans. At the same time though, as we alluded to earlier, the Ottomans were highly flexible on the battlefield and they made great use of different fighting styles within the same army, combining the strengths of the forces at your disposal and understanding where the weaknesses of your enemy lay, enabled the Ottomans to utterly destroy the cream of Hungary at the Battle of Mohac in 1526. During that battle, the Turks made use of horse archers, field artillery, matchlock musket men, heavy cavalry and a wagon fort tied together by chains to anchor the central Ottoman line. Even during the Ottoman-Hungarian Wars of the 1440s, though, primitive muskets, what the Ottomans called the Tufek, were used in battle. The Tufek can tend to cause a bit of confusion, though, because while they're often referenced in Turkish sources, the term Tufek is kind of imprecise. It's sort of like our use of the word gun. 
and this means that we don't always know the calibre or statistics of their weapons, but we do know that from the early 1400s, references to the Tufek in Turkish armies increased dramatically. It's worth considering the fact that the low fire rate of the musket in comparison with the horse archer, since one shot could be fired from a musket in the time it took a horse archer to fire five or six arrows, greatly influenced the Turks and other empires in the Caucasus, in Mongolia, in India or in South Asia, which saw a prevalence of horse archer tactics. The kind of pike and musket combinations which Europeans were perfecting in the first half of the 17th century were virtually absent in the East and in the Orient. A culture of making use of the horse archers in the successor states of the Mongols also played a significant role, along with the traditions of seasonal raiding that made horsemanship essential in the region. It was not practical for the Mughal Empire of India, to take another example, to make use of these slow-moving pikemen formations when their enemies would be fielding swarms of horse archers, which would simply cut them to pieces. At the same time, though in some areas of India, the climate wasn't well suited to the breeding of horses, and more of a reliance was placed upon heavy cannons or rudimentary gunners, which their rivals would have to match. The Ottomans were also eager to learn, and they were perfectly willing to adopt the tactics of their rivals. During the earlier invasion of Hungary in the 1440s, the Ottomans encountered the wagon fortress for the first time, a tactic which involved chaining together several wagons, to anchor the defensive line, often positioned atop a hill or some other strategic position, and fortified with crossbowmen or, increasingly, arquebusiers, the name given to infantry equipped with a primitive form of the musket. While the Ottomans' quick adoption of firearms and the wagon tactic is notable, where their example stood out lay in their early integration of specialised gunpowder infantry into their standing forces. From the 1390s onwards, preceding their rivals by centuries, the Ottomans actually established a specialised corps of permanent salaried troops who were experts in the manufacturing and handling of firearms. In the last decade of the 1300s, the Ottomans employed artillery gunners paid with military fiefs, and a generation later they began to employ salaried cannoneers. This professionalisation of their armies clearly predated their European rivals, who had not begun to integrate gunpowder weapons consistently into their armed forces, and who also had yet to properly professionalise their armies or establish a standing army on anything more than a highly seasonal basis. From the mid-1400s onwards, a separate unit of armourers were employed in the Sultan's household troops, and they were tasked with looking after and carrying the infantry Janissaries' weapons. In the second half of the 1400s, organisation had reached a point whereby a wagon service within the army had developed, whose job was to manufacture, repair and operate war wagons in campaigns, as well as to set up the chain-linked war wagons which the Turks had copied from the Bohemians. In addition, the Ottomans had a less exciting relationship with their larger guns. Whereas Western sources record names and elaborate decorations for the bigger artillery pieces, the Ottoman sources don't. While the craftsmen of firearms were skilled and respected individuals, in the Sultan's realm he was also a soldier and as likely to fire the weapon as he was to sell it. In these circumstances, the aesthetic qualities of an arquebus were not as important as a man's ability to competently fire it. Parallels exist between Ottoman and Western armies, thanks to the advent and rise of Janissaries in Ottoman service. 
The status and establishment of this military caste is shrouded in myth, and the mere mention of Janissary often conjures up images of young Christian boys being ripped away from their mother's breast and trained for war under a militant version of Islam for the rest of their lives. Regardless of the truth of these ideas, we do know that the Janissaries emerged in the latter 14th century, and that they were a product of the child levy system known as the Devsherm, which Sultan Murad I instituted as a form of blood tax over non-Muslims. The Janissaries were trained in the use of the recurve bow, sword and shield, but they were quickly equipped with the Tufek after the spread of gunpowder weapons into the army. Unlike Europeans though, the Ottomans only granted the privilege of wielding firearms to the elite in society, which was what the Janissaries gradually became. Unlike the Knights of European stock, the Janissaries had the most humble of beginnings, but after establishing a reputation for themselves, they took on the trappings of power in Ottoman society. Like a mixture between a warrior caste of knights, Rome's Praetorian Guard, and Jewish pariahs in European society, Janissaries applied their reputation in warfare to create great business opportunities for themselves once they had completed or been released from their service. As the child levy system was relaxed in the 17th century, the Janissaries were replaced by regular conscripted soldiers and the peak of their prowess and reputation seems to have been during the 15th and 16th centuries before, in other words, greed and opportunism overcame the professionalism and Janissaries became just another element of the Ottoman army. And in the middle of the field, the Janissaries stood in three ranks, each musketeer with matches ready to fire, and they lined up the bigger wagons, chained to one another, in front of the Janissaries. Then, after the first rank of Janissaries fired their muskets, the second rank fires too. Afterwards, the rank that fired first kneels, and begins to reload their muskets. And as the third rank fires, the second rank in front of them bends and prepares their muskets. Then the first rank again stands up and fires their muskets. In such a way did a Turkish contemporary record the tactics of the Janissaries' volley fire in 1605 outside the fortress of Estergom in Hungary. References to such a specific form of volley fire reminds us of the kind of orderly fire-by-rank tactics of European armies later on in the 17th century, and it suggests that the Ottomans participated in the military revolution which brought these tactics about, or which it is said brought these tactics about. However, it is also worth considering the possibility that the Janissaries behaved like their European counterparts and emulated a volley-fire drill because their once legendary status as individually capable warriors had significantly diminished. For the sake of preserving some measure of cohesion among the Janissaries, and to keep their skills with the musket up to date, these Janissaries evolved with the times, rather than abruptly adopt the superior tactics of their European neighbours. It was also the case that, even while musketry remained important, the Ottoman armed forces boasted significant horse archer and even regular archer units as well, which could often inflict horrific wounds on their enemies, far outside the realm of possibility for the one-shot-per-minute musket-armed Janissaries. During the so-called Long War between the Habsburgs and Turks, fought between 1594 to 1607, the Ottomans often brought superior archery skills to bear against the enemy. In one battle in particular, and excuse my pronunciation here but good grief, the Battle of Miso-Karestes in October 1596, 
Archers were of more use to the victorious Turks at that battle than musketeers were. This despite the fact that the use of archers in the battlefield in the late 1500s flew in the face of the idea that the military revolution had embraced all civilised powers. Conversely, it could also be used to prove that the Ottomans were backward and not with the times. And that this was why they had stooped so low as to use a medieval weapon like the bow. Yet horsemanship and the skills associated with archery remained important facts of life for the steppe peoples, upon whom the Ottomans relied for auxiliaries right up to the late 18th century. Such facts remind us that the military revolution, if it indeed existed at all, looked very different and developed very differently depending on geography, traditions and culture. The unique status of the Janissaries necessitated military drills to keep that strata of the army in tip-top condition, yet this does not at all mean that the Turks abruptly dropped the other auxiliaries, which still made use of comparatively primitive weapons on paper, but which granted them such a fearsome reputation in reality. The idea that the military revolution was specific to each state is really just a scholarly way of saying that across the continent, the circumstances affected by geography, local traditions, pre-existing ideas about warfare, and countless other minor factors influenced how quickly the more modern infantry drills of the mass musket volley were adopted. Of course, this fact is obvious when you look at how varied the Turks were in comparison to, say, the armies of the Low Countries. It wouldn't have made sense for the Netherlands, either the Dutch or Spanish Netherlands, to make use of horse archers there, obviously, since sieges consisted of the overwhelming majority of military actions. We saw last time how the concentration of fortresses influenced how warfare developed, and how cavalry were less effective in the Netherlands than, say, the German heartland or the wilds of the Ukraine, and this also applies to the Ottomans. Raiding was less common in the more centralised regions of Europe, except to procure supplies, whereas in the wilder east, raiding was a fact of life, and the Ottomans harnessed these traditions for their military machine. The historian we met in the last episode, specialising in the role that France played in modernising 17th century warfare, John A. Lynn, wrote on this idea that The art of war in 17th century Europe passed through a transformation so fundamental that scholars have proclaimed it a military revolution. Changes in everything from tactics to institutional hierarchies gave armies many of the characteristics now recognised as modern. After initial advances credited to the Dutch and Swedes, the French led the wave of change during the second half of the century. But where did this leave the Ottomans? Were they condemned to follow the Europeans like sheep and even to steal their guns? Not so, according to the historian Gabor Augustin. Augustin has written extensively on the shape and development of the Ottoman armies, and rallies against the myths often perpetuated about the Ottomans, i.e. that their armies required firearms beyond the manufacturing capacity of the state, so many were simply stolen from the Christian West, or that chestnut that the Ottomans couldn't craft the specialised cannons themselves, and they remained stuck in the medieval era with their enormous unwieldy cannons instead, or another great chestnut, that their refusal to play catch-up with the Europeans led directly to the downfall of the technologically backward Turk. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where the appearance of archers in the Ottoman army suggested that the terrible Turk simply would not modernise, when the reality was that it was not practical to modernise in the Western sense, since this would mean handing underperforming muskets into the hands of men who were far more adept with their traditional weapons. The Ottomans understood this point, 
and their favouring of muskets and their handling by only the most elite demonstrates the respect they held for these weapons. It would not be until the 19th century that firearms would have reached a point as to surpass all old weaponry. At the start of the 1600s, muskets were becoming widely adopted as the basic firearm of the infantry, but they boasted several unfortunate disadvantages for the soldier, which would have to be addressed by mixing in a steady supply of shock melee troops. Thus, pikemen were introduced in increasing numbers to provide support against cavalry and to serve as a defence against charging infantry from the opposite side. Pikemen tended to occupy the centre of the battalion and would be flanked by files of musketeers on either side. It is also worth emphasising the unreliability of the matchlock musket, which was then commonly available. Vauban, the grandfather of French defence networks in the later 17th century, was able to speak of a thousand fire accidents because of the match, and this was hardly surprising considering the complex, careful process which loading, preparing and firing a matchlock musket involved. A lock would ignite the powder charge with a lighted match, which was normally a cord of flax or hemp. Yet the best most musket men could manage was one shot per minute, and in the midst of battle, while suffering the horrific wounds of the musket ball projectiles and trying to maintain morale, the musketeers would be faced with the equally demoralising fact that up to half of all of their shots misfired. In addition, Everything acted up when the weather was bad, and sometimes the powder could be of a lower quality or the match would go out without any good reason, forcing the musketeer to light it up again with the powder already prepared. This could lead to explosive accidents, and accidents were about as common as successful shots were against the enemy, so the musket was by no means a silver bullet, pun intended. But it was easier to train someone with this weapon than with a longbow, and it did require less effort, even if it was less technologically straightforward than the simple bow and arrow mechanism. Considering these points and the themes that we've examined in previous episodes, such as the idea of the English trading the longbows for the musket in episode 2, it was often not practical to kit out one's auxiliaries with the matchlock weapon, nor was it productive to attempt to train a man on horseback with a matchlock pistol when the bow was far more effective, and formed part of the identity of the raiding Tartars and Caucasus auxiliaries upon which the Ottomans depended. It was also going to be expensive to provide these auxiliaries with firearms made by the state, and the expense was surely pointless if the horse archer came equipped with his horse and bow already. On the completely opposite end of the scale though, the Ottomans were among the pioneers of metallurgy, a fact which may surprise you being one of the first empires to establish a state-sponsored arsenal in Constantinople, the same year that the city was conquered by Sultan Mehmed II. As the historian Gabor Agustin noted, the Constantinople arsenal was one of the first arsenals in late medieval Europe to be built, operated and financed by a central government, in a time when European monarchs obtained their cannons from artisanal workshops. The Istanbul foundry cast hundreds of cannons annually, and could easily ramp up production during major wars, a sign of adaptability. For instance, whereas in 1676 the foundry manufactured only 46 pieces, between July 1684 and June 1685, at the beginning of the Long War against the Holy League, it cast 785 cannons, mainly small field pieces. Indeed, the churning out of these small cannons by these production centres 
makes a lie out of the idea that the Ottomans were hopelessly behind or overburdened by their massive, immovable cannons, and that they never adapted to these hulking pieces for proper warfare. The Ottomans did have artillery for specific purposes, just as they had auxiliaries for specific purposes, and they understood that in warfare it was critically important to maintain a degree of flexibility. One of the greatest problems for Ottoman armies wasn't necessarily innovation or ingenuity, Rather, it was the problem of a uniform and centrally organised military administration which would hand each soldier the same weapon and train him the same way. These problems affected the Ottomans for the same reason that they possessed such varied armies. Their neighbours, as well as their vassals and auxiliaries, possessed weapons, military cultures and tribal traditions of their own which often superseded any effort to create any unitary military ordinance. Throw in the contributions made by mercenaries who came equipped with their own weapons and kept to regiments all of their own within the army, and the situation becomes still more convoluted. This, as we said, does not mean at all that the Ottomans lagged behind technologically. On the contrary, the production of a wide variety of field cannon and the use of flexible mass volley and horse archers must single the Turks out as pioneers in military technology. Janissaries could also expect to take muskets of varying size with them on campaign, depending on the fighting style of the enemy or the forces they would bring to bear, as well as the conditions they would be expected to fight in. Habsburg and Hungarian commanders considered the Ottoman muskets to be of better quality, with greater accuracy, longer range and more stopping power than their European musket equivalents. As if to qualify this claim, in Ming China during the 1590s, a treatise was passed which accepted the superiority of Ottoman muskets over Portuguese ones, and favoured the former musket in the event of trade. A primitive version of the bayonet even entered Ottoman service in the first two decades of the 1600s, and it took the form of a long straight knife which was stored in the butt of the gun. This could be plugged into the barrel of the gun once it had been fired, and it would protect the musketeer from cavalry or melee infantry. The varied circumstances of the Ottoman domains meant that a soldier who was equipped for anything was essential, as Gabor Augustin wrote. While the Ottomans were late in introducing the bayonet en masse, the above information indicates that the vulnerability of the gunner after he fired his weapon, mainly to swift cavalry charges, was a concern among the Ottomans, and that they experimented with possible countermeasures including combination weapons similar to the one described in the Chinese treaty. That the Ottomans were pioneers thus cannot be in doubt. It would not be until the final years of the 17th century that a bayonet and the drill to accompany it would spread across European military practice. This process made the infantry more flexible and it effectively doomed pikemen to the dustbin of history. Yet, whether Europeans accepted the Turkish innovation or not, it is important that we recognise the contribution made by the Ottomans to military technology and progress. At the same time, we should bear in mind that technology was not everything. Last time we looked at the Trace Italienne and examined its adoption throughout Western Europe. The Trace Italienne, we said, was a modern innovation which greatly lengthened the process of a siege, and it enhanced the security of France in particular. However, as Jeremy Black notes, these advancements in technology must be kept in perspective. The example of the Long Turkish War from the 1590s to 1606 that we saw earlier comes to mind again, because to defend against their fearsome enemy along the Hungarian border with the Ottomans, the Austrian Habsburgs had constructed several fortresses in the Trace Italian style. 
Yet, as Black appreciated, it was one thing to build and quite another to adequately defend. Jeremy Black said, The Ottomans were able to capture many of the Trace Italian fortresses recently modified by the Austrians using the cutting-edge Italian expertise of the period. Thus, rather than providing a paradigm leap or revolution forward in the defensiveness of Christendom, it is necessary to consider the advances in fortification, like other developments, in terms of particular circumstances. And not least to remember that defences were only as good as their defenders and logistical support. Although the Ottomans had no equivalent to the Trace Italienne, nor to the extensive fortifications built in the Austrian-ruled section of Hungary, as well as along the coasts of Naples and Sicily against Barbary raids, they did not require any such developments, as they had not been under equivalent attack. I believe it is important to know what lay beyond the borders of Western Europe, and to appreciate as well what made the Turk appear to be such a formidable enemy. This was the major purpose of this episode, but it was also to see how warfare affected each society differently. To a degree, we can discern a version of the great societal change brought on by the increasing scale of warfare in the Ottoman example. Janissaries, above all, became less of a military elite and more of a societal elite, similar to the case of knights, foregoing their military responsibilities and taking up lucrative service in the name of the king or sultan. But at the same time, it's important not to force things and make pieces of a puzzle fit when they simply don't. It'd be unrealistic to expect the Ottomans to develop and adapt their military tactics and army composition in the same way as the West, because the Ottomans, while they faced the Habsburgs, also faced very different challenges across the vast spread of their domains. Our mission, anyway, was never to validate or justify the military revolution idea, but, as we said, by looking at the Ottomans through the lens of that theory, we've been given a handy guide to lead us through the multi-layered processes of Ottoman military practice. We'll be returning for the next episode of 17th Century Warfare next month, so we'll be seeing all you guys the first week of September. But until that time, my name is Zach, and this has been the mini-series on 17th Century Warfare Episode 6. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.